Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. As we start our study this Lord's Day of Ruth, some of you are familiar with this story. It falls at a place in salvation history where we've studied the Exodus and how God brought His people out of the land of Egypt. And in doing that, He brought them to the Promised Land. But what happened in the Promised Land with God's people is something we see fairly consistently in God's Word. Uh, the people rebelled. Uh, they stopped obeying God. They stopped doing what they were called to do. And so uh, there's this real dark time in the life of God's people uh, between the time of coming into the Promised Land and when God gives them kings. Uh, that time is known as the period of the Judges. And that is the period of time in which we find the book of Ruth. We don't know exactly when it was written, uh, but we know it was written in that time period at some point. The people had probably been in the period of Judges for two or three hundred years uh, when we have the accounts of what took place in the book of Ruth. We don't know who wrote uh, the book of Ruth. Some suggest it was Samuel. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that this is a very important book in the life of God's people, and it's very important in the redemptive history leading up to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us the story of Ruth, a young Moabite widow who leaves her land, her country, her people, and she goes to the land of promise and puts her faith in the one true God. And my prayer is that as we walk through this book together, that God will teach us what it means to faithfully follow Him and teach us more about the Gospel. And one of the ways that happens certainly is when we gather to study the Word together each Lord's Day. Uh, another way that happens is as you read the Word on your own. And so I want to encourage you during this time between now and Easter as we walk through the book of Ruth to sit down and read the book of Ruth on your own. Read it multiple times. It's a short book, four chapters. You can read it in one setting. And I think you'll learn a lot more as we go through this study if you take that time to read it several times as we're walking through this book together. So, uh, with that introduction, uh, we're going to look at the book of Ruth today, just beginning with the first five verses in chapter 1, uh, to understand the setting, the background, and what's taking place, and what will follow in the chapters to come. So, out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand together as I read this text for us. Ruth, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is God's Word to his people, and it says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. If you would pray with me. Father, if all we had was the first five verses of the book of Ruth, we'd have a pretty bleak picture. We'd have a pretty depressing story. We see here a story of hard times. We see here, just in these few verses, much loss. 
Lord, what we learn as we read these verses in the context of the book of Ruth, as we read them in the context of the Bible as a whole, is that this is a story that shows us Your sovereign hand in the life of Your people. So Lord, I pray we would see Your hand at work in the book of Ruth. I pray we would see Your hand at work in our own lives as we walk through this study together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, uh, Sandy and I were visiting a, a friend's house in Bowling Green. And, and we were there, I remember standing in the kitchen, and I remember real specifically, I was just kind of looking along their wall, their refrigerator, some of the pictures they had, and there was this one little wooden sign that stuck out to me. The sign said, God bless our mobile home. Now, why it stood out to me was because we weren't in a mobile home. Uh, they had a rather large home, and we come to visit them, and so it was a, a bit peculiar to me that they would have this sign there. And so as I was sitting there gazing at it, trying to figure it out, I, I noticed that the, that the wife of the family we were visiting, she, she kind of laughed a little bit, and, and then she told me the story about this sign. See, they had several children, and their youngest had just gone on his first field trip. And when he went on this field trip, they'd given him some money to uh, buy something. And he decided that rather than buy something for himself, he would buy a gift for his parents, specifically for his mother. And so he was so excited when he got home from the field trip to give her this sign that he thought said, God bless our noble home. See, he thought it said one thing. Of course, it said something very different than that. And it was a funny story, and it, it kind of helped put into context what that sign meant. You see, just staring at it and not knowing the bigger picture in the story, it, it was just a sign. It made sense in and of itself. But once I understood the big picture, the big story, well, well then it all came together. As I thought back about that story, I thought, you know, that's kind of how many of us come to the Old Testament. We often come to the Old Testament as just these group of stories, these signs on a wall, and we look to them without considering the big picture and the background and what's taking place in redemptive history. And a good example of that's the book of Ruth. Uh, many come to the book of Ruth and they see it only as a love story. Now, they see it as a love story between Ruth and Boaz, and they hold it up as that. And there's certainly a love story that takes place here, but there's a lot more going on. And to understand what else is going on, you have to step back and you have to think of the big picture. You have to see how God's hand is at work from the first verse in Genesis to the last verse in the book of Revelation. You have to understand the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how if we don't understand the gospel, then we completely miss much of what's taking place in the book of Ruth. But when we understand those things, we can put the pieces together. If we just come to Ruth on its own, we see it as a story that's about Ruth or about Boaz or about Naomi. But when we come to it in light of the big picture, we see that Ruth is a story about God. It's a story about how God works in the life of His people. And what we see in the opening verses of this story is a picture of what happens when God's people don't trust in Him. And so that's where we're going to pick up in your outline that you have there in front of you with that first point in your notes. This reminder that when life is hard, we are tempted to walk by sight and not by faith. Now we come to the Scriptures in the New Testament, we see that clear instruction. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. But we see in front of us, in these opening verses in Ruth, an example of what happens when we do the opposite. 
when we walk by what we can see rather than trusting in God and putting our faith in God. And notice the first few words in that verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. And that period of the judges I've already mentioned was that time between when God's people came into the promised land and when they began to have kings. And during this time, it was a very dark time in the life of God's people because the people were disobeying God. They were rebelling against God. They did what we often see in the Old Testament. They would follow God for a while. They would seek His blessing. But then they would turn and they'd go in their own wicked ways. And God would bring all kinds of things against them to call them back to Himself. Sometimes He would bring foreign nations who would conquer them. Other times He would bring calamity in the form of famine or droughts. He would do all these things to call His people back to faith. And many times they would turn and repent, but then they'd go through this same cycle over and over. And so during the period of the judges, you find some of the most wicked things in the Bible. You find the darkest days in the life of God's people. And in fact, you can really summarize what's happening in the book of Judges by the last verse you have there in Judges. In our English Bible, Judges comes right before Ruth. So you probably have right in front of you that last verse. It says this, Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that really encapsulates what was going on in the promised land at this time. People were just doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. But what we see in the Scripture is often what we think is right in our eyes is the very thing that leads us farther and farther away from the Lord. In fact, we read multiple times in the Scriptures, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. And this is what God's people were experiencing. So notice, continuing in verse 1 there, during this day, this time when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, this takes place during a a very unique time in Israel's history where God had made a covenant with Moses. And under this Mosaic covenant, this is how God functioned with His people. If they obeyed Him, He blessed them. If they disobeyed Him, they cursed Him. And it was real clear. And so what you have in a period like this during famine was not a lack of how to be farmers. This wasn't a a lack of people being willing to work. What was happening here is God was using this famine to bring judgment on His people because of their sin. He was using this famine to call them back to Him. He was using this famine to draw them into repentance and into faith. And then He would bless them once again. But during this time, the people had to make a decision. They had to make a choice. Would they trust in God and turn back to Him? Or would they try to fix this problem in their own way? And that's where we're introduced to this man named Elimelech. We know little about Elimelech other than his name means my God is King, but his life doesn't seem to reflect what his name meant. Because what we see in these opening verses is that Elimelech, in this situation where there's a famine in the land, he chooses to take matters into his own hands. He chooses to find his own way to fix the problem. It seems for this man whose name meant my God is king that God was no more of a king to him than it was to his fellow countrymen who weren't walking with the Lord. So when life got hard for Elimelech, he left the land of promise And the Scripture tells us he went to the country of Moab. He went to Moab because there was food there. Now, again, a casual reading of the text, we might look and go, well, that that makes sense to us. 
I mean, you consider the day and age we live in. As industries change, as companies move. There, there are some places in our country that they used to be hubs of industry and lots of people lived there and worked in factories. But now, as those factories have moved, as industry has changed, there's nothing left for people. And so they have to move their families to another city in order to find work. And so it's easy for us to consider our own context and look at this and say, well, that doesn't seem like such a bad idea. But when you understand more about what's taking place here, you understand that this was a very bad idea. See, Moab has its roots in a wicked union that takes place in Genesis chapter 19. And you may know the story. We walked through this together when we walked through Genesis. You have this, this wicked union between Lot and one of his daughters and the offspring of this union and that offspring's descendants are the Moabites. And so their history was a history of just utter wickedness. And they lived up to their history. They were wicked people. In fact, when God brought His people out of Egypt and was taking them to the Promised Land, it's the Moabites who really come against God's people. It's the Moabites who try to starve out God's people. They try to hold back their bread and their provision and their waters as the Israelites are coming through. They try to do everything they can not to help them out. They even try to curse them at one point. Now, the king of the Moabites goes to great efforts to do these things against the Israelites. In fact, we see as we follow the story of redemptive history that when we get to Deuteronomy 23, God singles out the Moabites and says, these are people who I don't want in my assembly, and He curses them from generations. Their children and their children's children are going to be reminded of the sin of their fathers because of how God treats them and curses them. The Moabites were wicked people. In fact, we see even more recently in Judges chapter 3, it was the Moabites who sought to oppress God's people. And so consider the, the, the choice that Elimelech is making here. He would have known this history. He would have known well what had taken place in the life of of his people. He would have known about the Moabites and how wicked they were and all these evil things they did. And yet, it is the Moabites that Elimelech turns to in order to meet the needs of his family. And I believe he does this for the same reason that many of us make bad decisions. Because when life gets hard, when we're faced with trials and hardship, our temptation is to walk in the flesh and to walk by sight rather than trusting in God by faith. See, Elimelech here doesn't seem to be considering the history of God's people. He doesn't seem to be considering his faith in God at all. He simply seems to be looking at the situation and saying, well, Moab's got food. My family's hungry. So I'm going to take them there in order to meet this need. And yet what he should have done was stopped and considered what was taking place. Elimelech should have stopped and thought, has there been a time before when God's people didn't have food and how did God meet that need? You see, they're not that far removed from the Exodus. This happened probably about, or this book's written about 200 years or so after the Exodus. So just a few generations back, much like today we would study the Civil War, maybe the Revolutionary War, Elimelech would have known about what happened during the Exodus. And during the Exodus, do you remember what happened when God's people didn't have food? God literally rained bread down from heaven. 
He met the needs of His people. And you'll remember in our study from that, He didn't give them what they needed for tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. He gave them what they needed for that day. And why did God do that? Because God was teaching them to trust in Him and to trust in Him alone. In fact, if you remember that story there in the Exodus, God would rain down the bread and say, you just take what you need for today. And if they took food beyond that, well, that food would spoil. Why? Because God was teaching them day after day, I want you to trust in Me. But what does Elimelech do? He doesn't consider the Exodus. He doesn't consider how God had moved in the past. He decides to leave Bethlehem, which literally means house of bread. And to go to Moab, to these people who once had held bread back from the people of God. And so this is the choice Elimelech had. He he could stay in Bethlehem and have the Lord and nothing else. Or he could go to Moab and possibly have everything, but not the Lord. It's very much what we looked at at the end of our study of Galatians. It's this choice so often that's in front of us. We can pursue the things of God, and in doing that, we can die to this world and the things of it. Or we can pursue the things of this world and possibly gain everything this world has to offer, but in the process, lose everything that's eternal in our faith in Christ. We see that at the end of Galatians. We see it here at the beginning of Genesis. And so Elimelech makes a decision not based on faith at all. It was based on sight in a way that he could provide for himself. So how does that relate to us? Well, one commentator said it this way. Like Elimelech, We act as the sovereign of our own lives, making decisions that seem best in our eyes without reference to God and without serious thought about the long-term implications. Many bear the label Christian, yet their Christianity has no real impact on life-defining decisions. Just as Elimelech bore the name, My God is King, yet lived in a way that made it evident that God wasn't His King at all. Friend, is that true of you today? If somebody were just to come up and ask you, are you a Christian? Would you be quick to say, oh yes, I'm a Christian. Would you say that in word? But is it reflected in your life? Is there any tangible fruit in your life? Do you look any different than the world around you? Because if you don't, if you're going down the path of this world, then that name you bear is just a name. It's not a faith. And what we see here in Elimelech is a great example of someone whose name literally meant, my God is King, and yet his life did not reflect that at all. In fact, I think his life reflected what many of our lives reflect. That the only King we have is the one we see when we look in the mirror. See, we live in a culture that prides itself on saying you 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 are the most important person you do what makes you happy follow your heart be the master of your own destiny choose your own path i mean we see these phrases over and over and over they come at us in advertisements they come at us on t-shirts they're everywhere and yet they are completely contrary to what the Word of God tells us. You know what the Word of God says about our heart? It says it's deceptive. It says we don't even know the desires of our own heart. It says our heart will take us down a path that will take us so far away from the Lord. 
It says our heart will lead us to the pleasures of this world, but it will cost us our soul if we follow it. The world says that no, we are not the most important thing. That the glory is not about us. It's about seeking to glorify God. It's about turning to Him and trusting in Him. But that doesn't happen when we walk by sight. In fact, what we see when we walk by sight is we go into further disobedience, which brings us to that second point in your outline there. Walking by sight leads us to the path of disobedience. So, notice the digression here. Verse 1 tells us that Elimelech and his family went to sojourn in the country of Moab. That word sojourn means that they basically went as foreigners. They were going to stay foreigners. They didn't belong in the land of Moab. They're simply passing through. It's the same term we see applied to people of faith in the New Testament. You and I are supposed to be sojourners. We're supposed to be strangers in this world. That This is not our home. We are merely passing through. We are to set our gaze and our eyes and our intentions on the things to come in a new heaven and a new earth. But if we set them here, if we get planted here, so often we lose a focus on the Lord. And what we see here in Elimelech is that while initially he was going to Moab as a sojourner to be a foreigner, notice what happens by the end of verse 2. It says his family, they went to the country of Moab and they remained there. Now that word literally means they, they planted roots. It, it became their home. And so you can see the digression here. That they started out, well we're just going to go to this wicked place just to get food. And then they go to this wicked place and then that becomes their home. And then notice what happens next. Verse 3. Elimelech dies. Now, we don't know what the relationship between Elimelech and Naomi was like in leading them into Moab. We, we don't know if Naomi went kicking and screaming. We don't know if she was against this plan from the start. But what we do know is once they're there in Moab and Elimelech dies, she decides to stay. She had an opportunity then to turn and repent and go back to the promised land. To take her boys there. In fact, in this culture, in this context, a woman whose husband had died, she would have very little provision, very little rights. She would desperately need her family. And yet here she is in a pagan land among pagan people. And what does she decide to do? You continue in the text and you see she not only stays there, but she arranges marriages between her sons and these Moabite women. We'll see this as we go through Ruth more, but the, the mother was very instrumental in arranging and deciding who her boys and who her daughters would marry. And in this case, her sons both marry Moabite women. Now again, many might say, well, what's the problem there? Well, the problem is God had strictly forbade this. God had told His people, do not intermarry with these people of other faith. Do not intermarry with these people of pagan religions because if you do, your heart will go after their false gods. And time and time again, that's exactly what happened in the life of God's people. And so notice the, the digression here. It starts with Elimelech leading his family to this wicked place. where We're just going to get food. Well, we're not going to stay there. Now, that's not her. We're still a part of God's people. You no, know, now they, they plant roots there. And now his family dwells there. And now his sons marry there. See, that digression that we see in Elimelech is, is often what we see when we choose the path of disobedience. One sin leads to another. 
one shovel in the ground leads to another shovel in the ground, and before we know it, the hole gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's exactly what we do when we sin. See, sin always takes us farther away from the Lord than we ever thought we would go, and it always costs us more than we ever thought we would pay. You see story after story of people who do things, and you see them in our headlines, other things today, and you look at it and you're like, why would they do something so foolish? Well, why would they do something that would cost them literally everything? And you talk to people who are involved in these things, and you find, well, that wasn't the intention in the beginning. <laughs> but one thing led to another, and that to another, and that to another. And sin eventually takes us to a place that we never intended to go and costs us more than we ever thought we would pay. Consider the life of King David. King David's decision to, to follow the temptation of his coveting eyes led him to be an adulterer and a murderer. You consider Judas. Judas' greed led him down a path of deceit and ultimately of betraying our Lord Jesus Christ. You consider the prodigal son. The prodigal son desperately wanted now the pleasures of this world. And where did it take him? It took him to a place where he literally lost everything and there he is in the slop with a bunch of pigs longing for the slop that they were eating. Friends, that's what the path of disobedience does. That's what the path of sin does. It takes us farther than we ever thought we would go. It costs us more than we ever thought we would pay. But here's the good news is that God is so rich in mercy. It's just like we sang earlier. We may focus on our sin and how much our sin abounds, but His mercy is always more. And what we see in the Gospel is that as we go down this path of disobedience, God is at work in His sovereignty. He's calling us back. He's calling us to repentance. Even though Elimelech took his family to Moab, even though his boys get married there to Moabite women, God still has a plan for his lineage and a plan for that family. But for them to experience that plan, they've got to turn and they've got to come back to the land of promise. And for you and I to experience God's plan, we need to turn and we need to repent as well. You see, this is what the Gospel teaches us. The Gospel teaches us very clearly that all of us have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of God. It teaches us that the wages of that sin is death. It teaches us that we rightly deserve the wrath of God on our lives. Now, you may be in a place right now where you don't need me to tell you that you're a sinner. Where you recognize that your life is not in sync with what God's desire for your life is. Where you feel this perpetual sense of guilt where you may call it your conscience, you may call it other things, you, you may have just written it off as, well, I shouldn't feel that way because I'm doing what my heart desires. But deep down, you know you are disobeying the Lord. And you may have all kinds of deals you think you've made with God. Well, well I'll, I'll do this for just this season, but eventually I'll come back. Or, or it's okay here because I've done all these other things. You, you may come to this church every Sunday and serve here and give here and think, well, as long as I wear that, that name of Christian, I'm okay. But the question is, does Christ really have your heart? Have you truly turned and trusted in Him? Have you repented? See, God is so merciful 
and gracious. He calls us to turn and to trust in Him. But He also reminds us of something very clearly in these opening verses. That if we refuse to turn and trust in Him, He's not going to bless our disobedience. And that brings us to your third point, your outline there. God does not reward disobedience with blessing. I've had so many conversations with people who don't understand why things aren't working out, who don't understand why God isn't just blessing this relationship or this job or this venture. But when we start really digging into it and looking into it, they haven't been trusting God the whole time. So often they try to put things together on their own. This happens all the time in relationships. Rather than following the parameters that God's laid out, we go to Moab to find what we want. And then we wonder why God's not blessing it. Because friends, God doesn't bless disobedience. And we see it very clearly here with Elimelech and Naomi. That they go to Moab, that they find a life in Moab, their boys find wives in Moab, but look at what it costs them. Elimelech dies in Moab. That their boys die in Moab. That their wives, Orpah and Ruth, they remain barren in Moab. That there is no blessing for them to find in Moab. Moab. In fact, look at verse 5 again. It simply tells us this. The woman. It doesn't even say Naomi's name. This, this, this woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. She has literally lost everything. And it seems at this moment that she begins to understand this. How they left the land of famine and they went to something far, far worse. It seems that she's starting to put these pieces together, especially when you continue in chapter 1 and verse 13. And Naomi says this about herself, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She realizes that she is now found that she reaps what she sows. And she sowed disobedience and she sowed faithlessness and now she is reaping it but God is merciful and God is gracious and if you've read this you know what's going to happen she is going to experience blessing once again but it will not happen in Moab it will only happen when she turns from that wicked land and she goes back to the land of promise and when she goes back she will be blessed far beyond anything she could have comprehended. In fact, she actually says, I just want to go back there and die. But what happens when she goes back is she finds life and she finds it abundantly. What we see here in Ruth is foundationally a story about God and how God interacts with His people and how His sovereign plan unfolds. But what we also see is a story about us. See, just like... Elimelech and his family lived in a time of famine. Friends, we live in a time of famine. I realize you can leave this place today and you're probably already thinking about where you're going to eat and, and food abounds. You can find it anywhere. But there's a different kind of famine in our land. It's a spiritual famine. And people are trying to fill their lives with so many other things thinking that ultimately they will satisfy. And they are turning to Moab after Moab after Moab only to find that those things don't truly fill their soul. We are in a place of famine. 
And in hard times, just like with Elimelech, the temptation is for us to walk by sight and not by faith. When hard times come, when trials come, our tendency is to turn to worldly counsel rather than turn to the counsel of God's Word. Our tendency is to listen to all these voices in the world rather than listen to God's voice and His Holy Spirit. And so when trials come, we think, well, if I can just change something, that'll fix it. So maybe if I change my city like Elimelech did, or I change my job, or I change this relationship, or I change from one vice to another vice, or or I change from this deal to that deal, If, if I could just change something, well, that'll make it all better. But what we find is changing our circumstances don't really get down to the core issue. Because what we desperately need is not a new job, a new city, a new pursuit, a new relationship. What we need is a, a new heart. And that only comes through the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so my encouragement to you is to one, walk through this study with us in Ruth, but as you walk through it, is to be honest. Are you going down the path of disobedience right now? Or are you trusting in the Lord? Are you in the midst of a trial right now and you desperately want to fix it? Does God have your attention this morning? Or does He need to bring a famine in your life to get it? Wherever you might be, the question is, how are we going to respond to the Word of God? And I want to give you a suggestion. It's found in Psalm 46. In Psalm 46, the psalmist is very much describing a time of suffering and trial. He says that that he's in trouble. He says he feels like the earth is giving way. It seems like the mountains are falling into the sea. That, That sounds like a big description of life is not good for him. And so in the midst of this, this is what the psalmist learns. The Lord says to him, Come behold the works of the Lord how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. God's Word to this man in a time of trial is first stop and consider who I am. Stop and consider who the Lord is. What what the Lord has done. That primarily comes as we stop and we consider the Word of God as we experience a trial. And then He says this in verse 10, Be still. Be still. We have, so, we have so much trouble just following those two words. Be still. Why? Because we want to do something. We, we want to fix it. And maybe some of you are in situations now where trial has come, suffering has come. You've tried to fix it, tried to fix it, and you're just exhausted in trying. I believe what the Lord wants us to do is to stop and to be still and to trust in Him. If you are going down that path of disobedience, stop and turn and trust in Him. If you are, have already returned to the land of promise, then stop and be still. Because just like we're going to see as we study the book of Ruth, God has a plan. And God is going to sovereignly work that plan out. And there's no better place to be than on the front seat watching God's plan unfold. But you can't be there if you're disobeying God this morning. And you can't be there if you refuse to repent and trust in Him. And so our invitation today is our invitation every Lord's Day is to turn and place our trust in God. If you would stand together as we pray.
Father, I am mindful that two words or 20,000 words won't change the heart of someone who's lost in their sin. And there's a work that needs to happen here today that only you can do through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Father, I pray for men and women and children in this room who are going down a path of disobedience. They may look on the outside like they bear the name Christian, but Lord, their heart is not Yours. Lord, I pray that You would do whatever it takes in their life to bring them to a point where they have to turn and consider where they're at. Where they have to turn and look back to that land of promise. Lord, to that point that the prodigal son was at where where he was looking at the food that animals were eating and he was longing for it. And in that process, Lord, You broke him. And You brought him back to the Father. Lord, I, I pray for folks here this morning, I pray that we would be a people who would not be so stubborn and prideful in our sin that we keep going down that path that will take us farther and farther away from You. I pray, Lord, that we would be marked by repentance and by faith. And Lord, I pray as well for people here this morning who may be suffering, they may be in a trial, they may feel like their life is filled with famine and fatigue and trial and suffering. Lord, I pray that You would help them to be still, to not fix it, but to turn to You and trust in You. Lord, I pray that for all of us this morning in Christ's name. Amen.